Again, we'll be in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through 5. So we'll start with that. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now chapter 3, verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 6. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers do not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like cows from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Herb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nolan. That was a beast. I appreciate it. Uh, Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you this morning. Today is the final sermon in our series of the book of Malachi. So if you're just joining us, we are in the midst of a hiatus from our year-long series in Matthew and in the book of Malachi. And to recap, this is the last book. Uh, written in the Old Testament, placed right before the book of Matthew. It's structured into a series of disputations or charges that God brings against his people through the prophet Malachi. So these were violations of the covenant that Israel has committed, and now God is calling the people to repent. So we saw in week one, the violation was polluted worship offerings. Week two, we had the dual charges of unfaithfulness in ministry for the priests and unfaithfulness in marriage for the general population. Last week, we had the charge of robbing God by withholding of the people's tithes. 
And this week, as we read, this is the charge of besmirching God's character and questioning his ability to give out justice. So as we'll walk through, the bulk of this passage is actually about God's response to the people doubting his ability to give justice. Behind each of these sins and charges is really a lack of faith by Israel. So it's a lack of faith in God's provision, who he says he is, his goodness. And each week we've walked through how the work of Jesus on the cross fulfills the need for perfect faith that we never could, and then how it naturally produces more faith in us as a result. Today's passage is a, it's an apt ending for a book on a lack of faith because in a rush of mercy, God responds to the doubting of his character and a lack of faith in his way of doing things with the outlining of his future plan, not just for justice, but also for healing and comfort through the cross. He explicitly tells his children that he will remember them and remember their faith and provide for them for eternity. So we'll walk through this passage, just how it unfolds. First, we'll look at the unfair life. Second, judgment of evil. And third, future for the faithful. So first, the unfair life. Second, judgment of evil. And third, future for the faithful. So first, the the unfair life. I hope at some point in this series you've been able to identify with the Israelites, but even if not, I think today we've all been where they're coming from, which is life is not fair. We've all uttered those words. Maybe you've said them on the the way here this morning. Uh, And we probably will many more times this side of eternity. So the Israelites looked around and said, well, well, hang on. You know, why are the pagans prospering and look to be having a great life when they don't recognize you, God, or follow your rules? Why do they get all the benefits of a good life without being subjected to the same standard of living as we are? They literally say in verse 17, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. That's pretty strong. So not only are they just saying, hey, God, you know, I'm not sure if you notice the problem, but those people over there sure seem to be having a lot of fun despite not recognizing you as God. They're going a step further, and they're saying, God, we know you see this, and this is messed up because you give us all these promises and call us your people, yet clearly... You're letting them having the time of their lives while we are about to have a famine because you won't give us rain. Context is helpful here. So as we read, they were having their crops devoured and in a drought because of their violations of the covenant thanks to their polluted worship and withheld tithes. So objectively, not great already. On top of that, these people were still waiting for the Messiah. So they, or more likely their parents or grandparents, finally returned to Israel from being captive in Babylon. And the thinking there was that this return to Israel would usher in a new era that would culminate in the Messiah's coming. And what they got was a whole lot of hard work rebuilding their country and prophets from God, so Ezra and Malachi, that came to denounce their sin. So you can see, right, where they might have been unsatisfied with their situation. And now they're taking a look around and asking, is it really worth following God? I mean, we've all been there, right? When we look around and see people who have rejected God living the life that we want or having the things we want, or even maybe having the peace, seeming to have the peace and happiness that we want, it forces us to ask that question. We're confronted with, on the one hand, God says he's good, 
and promises to bless those who fear him, but on the other hand, we still experience suffering and evil while those who don't fear God appear to be the ones who are blessed. Like the Israelites, our society primes us to have this response. I mean, human nature predisposes us to to have this train of thought, but especially the society we live in encourages it. So, for example, our, our addiction to instant gratification makes this questioning of God a very natural extension. We're used to having our our problems solved instantaneously, our packages delivered in two days. Even that seems a little long now. And so it shouldn't be surprising, right, that we get annoyed with God when we think he's taking too long to dole out justice to the wicked and blessing to us. Now, in some cases, that can be a holy longing uh, that is actually healthy and encouraged by the Bible, like David crying out, how long, O Lord, will you turn your face away? But I know in my heart, it's, it's usually this stubborn frustration with God. And simmering under the surface of our frustration is usually the inescapable feeling that we think we know better or that we would have done better than God. And just saying that seems, seems absurd, that we think we know better than God, but it really is under a lot of our misgivings about him and how he does things. And similar to instant gratification, we've been preconditioned to respond to God this way through another societal response. And I am talking about the classic mantra found in Western businesses like Apple and Safeway. The customer is always right. I worked at a grocery store in high school. I am sick of that phrase and the trauma that it's done to me. Our nation is really an experiment in what happens when the customer is always right is taken too far, although that is probably a talk for another day. But this is one of the ways in which we're formed by our society. Since, since we, the customer, are always right, we turn into constant consumers, buyers who are entitled to the exact thing we desire in the most efficient manner possible. And anything that's in a position to give us things, so in this case, God, it turns into the object of our scorn when it does not meet our standards. We do it to God all the time. And it it can happen in very subtle ways, too. So one way within the church, it it looks like, you know, if if we don't feel like we're reaping the benefit of our church or out of relationships in the church, society conditions us to move on and to look for the right fit, which creates market-driven church and eventually churches that are more based on ideology or vibes than what's in the Bible. Our society primes us for this response to God when we feel shortchanged by him. This response by the Israelites and us also indicates a few misconceptions about how God works. So first off, we see that God is thankfully patient towards unbelievers. This is part of his character. So we see the wicked prospering and benefiting from injustice, and we want immediate retribution, right? We want God to come with fire and brimstone and teach them a lesson, or at the very least, we're like, can you just make them a little miserable? But his his timeline to make things right does not conform to our timelines. The Bible shows that God is slow to anger and delays judgment to give people a chance to repent. Sometimes the Lord has sheep in other folds, and he must bring them in. And to go get them, that takes time. We don't know if the evildoers that are prospering today could be standing by our sides in eternity as a child of God, and that would only be because of God's gentle patience towards them. And so in this, God is giving us a model to follow. Call out injustice, yes. Call to repentance, yes. But do so with gentleness and patience and forbearance. 
with the long view of eternity in mind. This questioning of, of God's methods also reveals a lack of understanding of how God's, God blesses us. God's primary mode of blessing us in this life is, his, is the gift of his presence, that he will be with us or return to us. Often we slip into what I call this one-to-one blessing formula, which, which goes like this. We think if I follow God's call in this area of life, then the payout or benefit God gives me will directly relate to that area. And while sometimes we do prosper in that same area, as God's way of living will naturally create good, his blessing usually looks very different than what we expect or want. So for instance, if we think we tithe, we'll receive financial blessing. If we keep to the biblical sex ethic as a single person, we think we'll be rewarded with a perfect spouse and great sex in marriage. If we're nice to our coworkers and have integrity in the workplace, then we'll get the promotion and career success. You see the theme. And if those things don't happen, we're devastated. We can't make sense of why God would do this to us or where we went wrong in following what he said, and then we're left shaking our fists up at God. So the the bottom line is this. If our conception of God's blessing is too informed by what the world says is blessing, then I guarantee we'll feel mistreated by God at some point in our lives. It will feel unfair by the world's standard. I went to graduate school in Montreal, Canada, and being in Quebec, the culture is very French, and because of the French culture, it has a robust protest culture, Always a protest going on. And one day there's, there's this big protest near campus, and so I asked someone nearby, like, hey, man, what's, what's going on? What's the deal? And he goes, oh, did you hear? They, they doubled tuition for Quebec students. And, you know, me viewing this through an American lens, I'm like, wow, that is terrible. You know, I'm thinking, like, 50K, 100K is tuition now. And I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, that's awful. What an injustice. And he goes, I know from $250 to $500 a semester. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> okay, this is, this is not the disaster you, you think it is. So what was happening there, right? Our, what was happening was our conceptions of justice were totally different. We had two different foundations of what fair felt like because of the differing scopes of our knowledge and experience. And in the exact same way, our limited sinful humanity and societal culture warps our feelings of fairness and timelines of justice. And it warps it in such a way that we end up not being able to conceive how God's plan could ever account for the pain and injustice in our lives. But the Bible makes clear his ways are so, so much higher than ours. And it calls us to trust in those ways and in his promise of justice and blessing just like the one we see in this passage. And as we've been hammering home, you're probably sick of me saying this, but, but God's promises and bless, of blessing in this life are primarily that of his presence and internal spiritual benefits. And perhaps still you might be saying, well, that's nice, but that's, that's still not helpful in the here and now. We walked through a little bit what this looks like in the day-to-day last week, but I, I want to ch- challenge everyone here in a slightly different way today. So if God is omniscient, the maker of the universe, if he's completely holy, then would he not know what justice is and when to give it? And if he made you, which he did, and if he knows you better than anyone else, which he does, do you not think he might not know 
that what you need the most? And his answer is the same every time. What you need the most is relationship and intimacy with him. He will give us many good things in this life, things that we don't deserve, and many of them will be material. And thank you, Lord, for those gifts. But the thing we deserve least in this life is a relationship with the holy God and access to the one who made us. And that brings us to the only possible way that we could have that access, which is Jesus. Don't freak out. I'm going to talk about Jesus in point one. It is allowed. We have to understand this. The greatest and most heinous example of something bad happening to someone good was on the cross. So Jesus lived the perfect life. Whereas we don't deserve anything we get in this life, his life actually did demand return. So he selflessly poured into others, he healed others, he taught others. His entire life was centered around the poor and the oppressed. And his reward for that life that did demand return was being spat upon and blasphemed by his own people. He was scourged in humiliating fashion. His head was punctured with thorns and then made to carry his own machine of death to where he would die in the most humiliating fashion his day had ever known. And to boot, He lived his entire life knowing that that was his future, and he still followed through with it. So the greatest example, and it's not even close, of injustice is Jesus' death on the cross. And he did so so that we could receive the blessing of God's presence through the Holy Spirit. The blessing he deserved was given to us as his perfection is now ours. So we can have peace knowing that we are blessed even as others prosper and evildoers have their day because we are blessed through the blood of Jesus and his work on the cross. And that's because he took on the judgment reserved for us, which brings us to point two, judgment of evil. Ultimately, this one is pretty straightforward. So as we said in the beginning, God responds to Israel's, frankly, blasphemous accusation that he is unjust with his plan that outlines how he's going to deal with evildoers. Picking up in verse 5 of chapter 3, God says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Then in chapter 4, he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. God responds to the people with a picture of what his justice will look like for the evildoer and the wicked. He will come as a witness against them. So those sins he listed pretty much encompass every category of sin, be it internal or relational. And recall that the people were engaged in a lot of the sins that he listed there, so like adultery and withholding from tithing, which would have decreased the money given to the widows and the fatherless. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus will be the one to judge humanity. And in this passage, and this this passage shows us the end result for the wicked who reject God. They will be condemned and consumed, which the passage describes here as a burning oven. So that's God's response to the people questioning his ability to deliver justice to the wicked. He's saying, my justice will be complete and total. And since God's blessing is in his presence, then the wicked will spend eternity without God's presence. This should be our future as well. 
See, the, the Israelites looked around at others' sin and wanted justice done to them, but as the book of Malachi clearly shows, they ignored, they were ignoring the sins in their own heart, and we do the same. And the irony is that apart from God, we aren't any better than the evildoers listed in this passage. And the sins that God said that he would come as a witness against, we've all committed them. And sinning once is all that's all that required to guarantee this as our grim future. The only thing, the only thing that separates us from this as our eternal reality is the person of Jesus. Not anything we do, but rather his work on the cross. So therefore, we have to reject any sense of superiority complex or casual sense of, you know, they'll get what's coming to them. And while the promise of God's justice is supposed to carry us through times of suffering and pain done to us, it is not cause for any sense of quiet pride or an inflated sense of righteousness. In fact, this future for the wicked really should cause us to move towards those who do wrong to us. Jesus spoke frequently about loving one's enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And so the heart of Jesus in the gospel always bends us towards loving the non-believer, not putting up barriers of insulation or superiority. Because we, want, we, we shouldn't want them to receive judgment. We should want them to receive Jesus. And so we can let that reality described here provide us the urgency and the compassion we need to reach those around us. We know that we truly aren't any better apart from God, and we can proclaim that the only righteousness we have is Jesus. On the cross, Jesus accepted this punishment and torment for those who profess faith in him. So he, he took on our sin and our violations of the covenant and put himself in our place to receive God's complete and total justice. To put us into right standing, he took on that burning oven meant for us. And what's more, he bore an even more painful punishment, God totally and completely withdrawing his presence from his son. And so the blessing of his intimacy and his presence was taken away from Jesus, who had that as his base of reality since the beginning. And even though his life deserved God's presence, as his life did demand return, it was taken at the moment he needed it the most. So we don't deserve to have any of God's presence with us in this life. But now we do. And we certainly don't deserve an eternity of his felt presence and joyous communion with the Father. But now, because of Christ's holiness and perfection, we do. So that brings us to point three, the future for the faithful. Just as this passage describes the justice God will bring to the wicked, it also describes the future that awaits those who put their trust in him. So picking up in verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. So here we see that while the wicked go about the earth rejecting God, God is listening closely to the words of believers and what they say about him. This is not in an eavesdropping, waiting for the gotcha moment sort of way, but in a way that gives him glory and delight. He pays attention to the words we speak about him, and we see for the result, we see that the result is for those who glorify God, we become his treasured possession. So the God of all the universe who made life and earth and who holds ultimate power finds you to be his treasured possession. 
This reminds me of Matthew 13 when Jesus is describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. And when he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. And so you are his great pearl. He has found you and bought you with the price of Jesus' death. So your worth, therefore, according to God, the price of your soul is worth nothing less than the blood of the Son of God. So whereas the wicked are cut off from God, we see for the believer we are brought and held onto like a merchant clutching a jewel, or perhaps more accurately, a father holding his child close. Going down to verse 5 of chapter 4, this is a bit of prophecy as when he talks about his plan. God says he will send Elijah to turn the hearts of men. So this was fulfilled figuratively and literally in the New Testament. In the Gospels, despite his initial denial, John the Baptist is identified as the coming of Elijah by none other than Jesus. And as it says here in Malachi, John the Baptist, of course, paved the way for the Messiah and called the people to repentance. So it was fulfilled figuratively through him. And then this passage was fulfilled literally, as in Matthew 17 and recorded in other Gospels, Jesus is visited during the transfiguration by Moses and Elijah himself from heaven. On this side of the resurrection, we are all now as believers in the role of Elijah, as we are called to prepare the way and the hearts of men for the Lord's second coming. We're going to end today and this series uh, by going back to verse 2 and focusing on one of the main promises God makes for the believer, and that promises of healing. God says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is, again, I, I, it's hard for us to grasp this, but it, it's such a merciful thing from God to see the people who question him and question his plan and doubt his ability to give justice or even to look out for his own people. And his response is to show them his plan that promises not just action and justice, but also such a glorious future in healing. He describes healing as a thing that accompanies the sun rising. When I lived in Canada, one year I went to visit my brother who lived in Florida at the time. And this was around March, so still very dark, very cold, very snowy in Canada. And I got on the plane in this frigid climate, and as the plane descended into Florida, you could literally feel the heat and the humidity seep through the plane. And as I got out and was met with you know, bright sun and warmth, I could just feel it sink into my skin and bones, and all of a sudden, it felt like I was alive again. I wanted to be outside and work out and run, and I just had energy that I never had before. That's what Malachi describes our healing as, as being like. He says that we'll be like calves being released from their stalls in the spring. So we've suffered in our bodies, trampled on by pain and trauma and death, but this shows us that God will give our bodies healing and life, and we will run and dance with the joy and health of a newborn calf. And just as God's justice will be complete and total for the wicked, his healing will be complete and total for us. This is important because all of us in this room carry deep, deep scars. And some of us are, are so familiar with pain in this life that it, it can be hard to truly comprehend what healing could ever look like for us. I, 
I used to almost, and this, this might sound silly to some of you, but I used to almost find God's promise of healing to be a little cheap, uh, a little unfair, because for me it was like, you know, I, I go through this long life of pain and, and trauma, and I get to heaven or the new kingdom, and God just snaps his fingers and takes it all away. You know, I'm, I'm sure that would be nice, but it seems like it's a bit unbalanced. Like, I went through way more on my end than to just make it all go away with the flick of a finger. But that's, that's not what Scripture promises. See, the, the very word healing indicates that a specific wound is being addressed with the intent to make it better. God does say that he will remove pain in general in the new heaven and earth, but he's also very clear that he intends to heal us from our wounds, addressing every single one personally. Psalm 56, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. So God keeps track of every tear we've shed and every sleepless night we've had. Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Jeremiah 30, for I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. God will personally address our individual wounds. I don't know, I don't know how he will do this how he will address every little moment of pain and suffering. But he does give us the first part of the equation in 1 Peter 2. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We see here that Jesus' wounds play a role in healing us from our sin and saving us from our spiritual death. And the second part of the equation is that God is explicit in the Bible that he will heal and address to completion and to the point of beauty every pang of longing in our stomach, every shake of our body from trauma, every tear that's ever rolled down our cheek, every flare of anxiety that's due to our past, and every moment we can't seem to go on because it's too painful and too much. He's going to address and heal every last one. That's his promise to you, and that is his plan. That is how he responds to his people questioning him. And so what does that mean for life here on earth as the evildoers prosper and as we suffer and feel pain? Ray Ortland puts it best. This is what he says. He says, everything is going our way because everything is going his way. We measure our lives not by the present state of affairs, but by the future outcome as overseen by God. And that outcome is victory for the faithful and healing from our great God. The book of Malachi is about an unfaithful people that are given a future that only the faithful could ever deserve. It's about a God that desires to be in relationship with that unfaithful people, that loves them so much that he sends his son to die for them. And when the unfaithful people accuse God of being unfair, he responds with his great plan of justice and healing to them. That's his character. And that God is going to end up living with that unfaithful people because they are now his faithful people. With the record of God's son, Jesus, his faithfulness now counted to them. And so we see this future in Revelation 21, and we'll close with this. 
It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. <laughs> 